Happy Easter, everybody. Wasn't this fun? I always love Easter. I love confetti. I hope you do, too. It just makes things more celebratory. I have lost my voice, and it is returning, so I'm sorry if it sounds raspy. Hopefully, by the end of this, sounds will still be coming out. That would be ideal. Um, I'm going to pray as we get into what I have for us this morning. Um, Yeah. So, Lord, we thank you that you're already here and working among our hearts this morning. Lord, we just ask that um, what's on your heart, this message of, of what Easter is all about, would sink deep into our hearts this morning. Lord, I'm asking for eyes and ears that would be attentive and, and quick to hear what you are speaking, regardless of the words that I say. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I am really excited about this message um, uh, Easter is my personal favorite holiday. I love Christmas too because, you know, it's Christmas. But Easter is so fun because it is what the essence of our faith is really all about, right? There's no, I mean, Christmas, Jesus came, but without him dying and raising from the dead, there is nothing really different about our faith. So I love celebrating the resurrection. I think Grant did such an incredible job the last two weeks sharing about all the intricate details that led up to Easter. What's interesting if you think about it was if you were alive in Jesus' day, the Passover concept was something you would have been doing all your life. It would be like Christmas, right? We put up the tree, we sing these songs, we do these lights. On this day, we do this. It's all an expectation ingrained in you. So it's interesting for us to have to sort of put ourselves into that culture and then be able to see some of the detail that God was doing when I think if we were alive at that time, it'd be a lot more um, easier to see. But an Easter is such a complex holiday. There's so much we could say about it. So I think for the, for the interest of today, we're going to cover one aspect of Easter, which is this, that the resurrection brought us, it gave us freedom and it gave us a future. And that's the goal of what we're going to talk about today. I honestly feel like we could spend every Sunday for the rest of the year talking about the resurrection in all different shapes and forms and sizes and probably still not exhaust the topic. So today we're just talking about the cross giving us freedom, resurrection giving us a future. And I just have to say, it is so fun to preach with confetti on the ground. I'm like just putting a smile back on my face. So if you feel sleepy this rainy Sunday morning, just look at the ground and be happy. That's right. Uh, you know, Jesus fulfilled the law, right? Grant talked about that last week. If you missed it, uh, catch it up on the podcast. Jesus became the Passover lamb so that he could fulfill the law. <coughs> Excuse me. And when he did that, there was a divine exchange that happened. And so I want to just touch on one interesting story before we kind of branch off of the Easter story. And that's out of Matthew 27, 15 through 23. And this is the story of Barabbas. And Grant preached on this just a little bit, and I'm going to expound on it a little bit more. Barabbas was an interesting man. He was a murderer. He was in jail. People knew he was a convicted murderer. It wasn't like a wrongful imprisonment kind of thing. And every year at Passover time, to appease the Jews, the Romans would release one prisoner. So I'm assuming this is something like if there was a wrongfully imprisoned person, this would be your one chance to try to, like the governor's pardon, to let them get out. So uh, Pilate would do this every year just as a gift and I think just to keep the peace. So Barabbas was probably not on the top of the list of someone you want to be released, right? He was a known convicted murderer, not someone we'd be interested in putting back on the streets. But what most people don't know is that Barabbas was actually the son of a rabbi and his name, his first name was was Yeshua. It's fascinating, right? This comes from this uh, historian at the time, Josephus Flavius. He's written some interesting books if you're interested in that kind of history stuff. 
Um, but his name was Jesus Barabbas. So what's really interesting, and, and they say in this, um, in the historical context, that the gospel writers did not put Jesus in there as the name because they didn't want to, to scar the name of Jesus the Messiah in that context. But we know Jesus at that time went by Jesus of Nazareth, and there were other people with that name. Probably not as common as today, but there were with that name. So this story, Matthew 27, sorry, it's a little cut off. Um, it says, now, at, this is the amplified version, now at the feast of the Passover, the governor, Pilate, was in the habit of setting free any one prisoner whom the people chose. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner guilty of insurrection and murder called Barabbas. So when they had assembled for this purpose, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to set free for you? Barabbas? What he would have said was Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ. Interesting, the two parallels there. For, the, for Pilate knew that it would be, excuse me, for Pilate knew that it was because of jealousy that the chief priests and elders had handed Jesus over to him. Okay, we can go to the next one. <clears throat> While he was seated on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife came to him with a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous and innocent man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. The governor said to them, which of these two do you wish me to set free for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all replied, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What has he done that is evil? But they continued shouting all the louder, let him be crucified. Other translations say, crucify him. So Pilate is in this really interesting situation, right? I almost wonder if Pilate threw out, would you rather me release Barabbas or Jesus? As in, this is a no-brainer, pick the guy who's innocent, don't pick the guy who we all know is guilty. And to his dismay, the crowd start going, Barabbas, because they're overwhelmed with God's ultimate plan, even though they didn't know. So this, picture this with me. Last week, Grant shared with you about how the Antonio Fortress, which was the Roman center at that time, was literally wall-to-wall -wall with the Temple Mount, okay? And so... Um, <coughs> excuse me so the Jews there's all this ritual bathing and all this stuff that makes you clean and unclean little side note for you the story of the Good Samaritan the reason why the Levites didn't go touch him or check him was because they're not allowed to touch a dead body and what Jesus was speaking to in that story was don't let the law overcome your compassion right you can help people even if it's not but if this would be Passover time to make yourself unclean by stepping into a Roman's house would mean you have to go all the way back through all the ritual things right so the Jews are gathered on the outside, the exterior of the Antonio Fortress, would not dare to step foot inside. So to be heard far enough away, how loud do you think you need to be? Pretty loud. Now deep inside of this Antonio Fortress is the jail cells. It's where they held the people like Barabbas. So Barabbas would have been down in his jail cell, able to hear a throng of crowds screaming, right? He probably couldn't hear Pilate speaking back to them, but he could hear them shouting his name. So now imagine, he knows he's going to die at some point. He's going to be uh, punished for his crime. And he's sitting in his jail cell, and he starts hearing his name out of nowhere be screamed, Barabbas, Barabbas, because the people are telling Pilate, we want Barabbas. And then Pilate says back to them, what do you want me to do with Jesus called the Christ? And the next thing Barabbas hears, crucify him, crucify him. So picture your Barabbas down in this jail cell. You've heard your name being called, and now you're hearing the people shout that you should be crucified. Now the people know they're not asking Jesus to be crucified, but Barabbas probably thought it was him. So then the guards come down, boom, 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 you know, Barabbas, get on out of here. What do you think he thought? This is it. This is the end. I'm going to be killed. 
And they bring him out. And I don't know, nobody recorded the exact details of whether Barabbas was standing next to Jesus in that moment. But just picture that with me for a second. The Barabbas gets released up in front of Pilate. Pilate's in his judgment seat. And he's telling the crowd, do you want Jesus Barabbas or do you want Jesus the Christ to be released to you? And Jesus and Barabbas steps up there expecting death. That's what he knows he deserves because he's been caught. He's going to be punished for his crime. And instead, Jesus the Christ takes his place. An innocent man is taken while Barabbas, who had everything coming to him, wasn't. I believe this story, this moment in the journey of the cross is this echo. It's like a reverberating, um, it's like a trailer to a movie, right? The new Star Wars trailer came out. I've watched it multiple times. I'm excited trying to figure out the story. And this is what Barabbas was. It was a trailer to the big event that was just about to happen. It was Jesus saying, listen, what you deserve, you actually don't have to get because of Jesus the Christ. Pretty awesome, right? Excuse me. So in those 72 hours, everything changes. We know Jesus died on the cross. We've talked a lot about that. There's so much more we could get into. But then he raises from the dead. And in that 72 hours, Jesus not only fulfilled the law of the old covenant, but he enacted a new covenant. I don't know if this is why it says Old Testament, New Testament, but it would make a little bit more sense if the New Testament started after the resurrection, just in terms of like what actually happened in life, right? The old covenant was fulfilled. Jesus paid for it. Let me put it this way. If you guys own a house, you have a house mortgage most likely, right? Um, when you have a house mortgage, you own your house, but you still have to pay the bank. And if you stay in your house long enough, 30 years or so, if that's what your mortgage note is, there will come a day when you get a piece of paper back to you that says paid in full. You don't own anything. You don't owe anything else on your house now. You own it free and clear, right? When you get that paid in full notice, no one can come and try to convince you that you still owe money on your house. Picture with me, you've paid in full, somebody comes up to you, knocks on the door and says, I'm from the IRS, which we know they don't do, but love those IRS scammers. And they come and they say, your office in your house was actually not actually included on your mortgage note. So you need to be paying me $300 a month for five years so that we can pay for your office. What would you say to them? No way. No way, right? I have paid in full. It's a done deal. The payment's been made. There's nothing you can do to convince me I owe anything on there. This is what Jesus' payment on the cross did. Our sins have been paid in full. There's nothing you can do. Like people can come, and they do come. They try to convince you. There's certain um, aspects of people who are spiritual that say, like, you know, for some Catholics, not all Catholics are like this, but like the Hail Mary concept, right? Okay, I've sinned. Now I need to do five Hail Marys, two push-ups, a couple twirls, and then I'll be absolved, right? They don't do that, but, you know, there's people who believe that. There's people who believe uh, monks. If you look through Christian history, they believed if they sinned, they'd have to whip themselves, that that would be their uh, um, payment for the sin. Listen, anything someone tries to tell you that you owe for your sin is a lie, This is crazy if you think about it because we feel bad about our sin because we have the Holy Spirit convicting us, right? But anything that somebody comes and says to you, well, you did that and so God won't, whatever, that's not biblical (laughs) because your payment has been paid. The debt that you owed has been paid exactly like a home mortgage. We had an interesting experience happen about seven years ago. I hesitated sharing this story, but I'm going to share it anyway. We, uh, we had been praying. We'd been, uh, we're, our house cost a little bit more money than we had been caring to spend on it. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. Some people call it house poor. 
And it was like, well, we just, more of our budget goes to our house payment than we care to do, but we didn't know really what we wanted to do about it. So we've been praying, God, show us what you want us to do. And about a year later, a family relative of ours um, came to me and said, I've been thinking and I want to give you your inheritance now. And so I'm going to buy you a house. It'll be in your name. It's free and clear. And then you just won't have a house payment. Hopefully that'll help your financial situation. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Thank you. That would severely help my financial situation. Thank you. Then Grant and I kind of looked at each other. And we thought, is this for real? Like, is this for real? So nine months later, it took about a year to find the right house, which subsequently was next door. It was a journey all around town to get next door. And um, we bought this house and we bought it at a great deal and it was gifted to us and we no longer had a house payment and just the grace of God, we were able to sell that house at top dollar and buy the house we're in now. And it's been an awesome situation. So you could come to me and say, you owe something on this house. And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't owe nada, <laughs> right? You cannot convince me of that. It's exactly the same way with my sin. You cannot convince me that I owe anything. Now we're going to get into how to balance that in just a second, but I a preacher that I love, he puts it this way. If you're not preaching grace in a way that's offensive, you're probably not preaching it biblically. Listen, God is so good. He's audaciously good. He's offensively good. And when I read some of these scriptures we're about to get into, I have moments where I think, this is nuts, Lord. Why would you do this? Why? Why would you give permission for people? He's not giving permission. That's the thing, right? So we're going to get into that. Okay, so let's look at Romans 3, verse 21 through 26. This one says, there is no distinction. This is out of the Jewish, complete Jewish version translation. I just like the way it said it. It says, there's no distinction since all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Nobody is exempt from needing to pay for their sin. Okay? There's another version, another uh, part in the Bible says, there's nobody righteous, not even one. All right, so uh, let's see. And are being justified, declared free of the guilt. Let me start over because it's so good. There's no distinction since all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God and are being justified, declared free of the guilt of sin, made acceptable to God and granted eternal life as a gift by his precious undeserved grace. Through the redemption, the payment of our sin, which is provided in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly before the eyes of the world as a life-giving sacrifice sacrifice of atonement and reconciliation or propitiation by his blood to be received through faith this was to demonstrate his righteousness which demands punishment for sin because in his forbearance his deliberate restraint he passed over the sins previously committed before Jesus's crucifixion this is actually the amplified translation sorry uh, it says it was to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus and rely confidently on him as savior okay so what is this saying there is no distinction everybody needs Jesus Everybody needs their sin dealt with. You can be a really great person and you still need Jesus. You can be the scum of the earth and you still need Jesus, right? All right, let's look at Romans 6, 6 through 11. I know sometimes Romans is hard to wrap your mind around. This is why I'm using a couple different translations to help it make sense. Um, this is the one that's the complete Jewish version. It says, we know that our old self was put to death on the execution stake with him. In other words, crucified. So that the entire body of our sinful propensities might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For someone who has died has been cleared from sin. Now since we died with the Messiah, we trust that we will also live with him. You guys tracking with me? In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, you were put on him too. So you have been put into Jesus when he was on the cross. So your sins were paid for. So now in the same way that he is in you, and it's through Jesus, right? We cannot have this forgiveness any other way. Let me put it this way. Let's go back to our mortgage analogy. Um, let's say that my relative came to me and said, I've put this money in an account for you. And so when you go to buy your house, just use this money and you'll be fine. Okay, thank you, right? And I go, I find the house that I want. It's awesome. And I, I just think, well, it's, it's a little bit, you know, that bank is on the other side of town. So I'm just going to go ahead and use this lender. But, you know, I'll, I'll work it all because I have the money for it. So I get the house through a different means. And then I don't pay the the mortgage because I don't need to because it's been provided for me right so I don't pay the mortgage and I don't pay the mortgage and you guys know what's going to happen somebody is going to knock on my door and say this is my house not yours right and I'm going to get my house taken away but I could say no 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 I have the money this house was gifted to me and they'll go uh no 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 because you didn't put that in this account that's how faith in Jesus works. It's already there for you. Done deal. Not a question. But we have to say, I will take that and I will apply it right here. I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. I carry hand sanitizer pretty much with me everywhere. I wasn't always a germaphobe, but I'm becoming my dad, and that's okay. When I was growing up, my dad's a gastroenterologist, and we had a list of restaurants we were banned from, from people he had treated from too many cases of food poisoning. And he would just say, like my best friend's families would eat at these places and he'd say, where are they going to eat? Well, you can't go. <laughs> Doctor's kids have an interesting way of life. So I carry hand sanitizer with me and because um, as we grow, we become our parents at some level, right? And I put it on every time I leave a grocery store without fail. I wipe the cart down, but I also hand sanitize because I don't want anybody else's germs, right? And I, if I just carry this hand sanitizer with me like this, and I just tell myself all the time, I'm immune. Ain't no strep going to get on me. If you guys know, my family gets strep throat a lot. Uh, not, we're not getting that. No flu. Nuh -uh. But I never put this on my hands. What's going to happen? I'm going to get sick, guys. Hand sanitizer doesn't work unless you get it out of the bottle and put it on your skin. Same with soap, right? This is how the blood of Jesus works. The money can be set aside for your house, but you're going to get foreclosed if you don't put it in the right account. And this is what these verses are saying, is that Jesus did this, and now we put it over here. We accept that through him. We step into, and this is a one-time thing, we step into Jesus, and now we are free from our sin. I think there's, um, is there one other version of this verse? Yeah. Okay, the message. Oh, I love this. This is so good. Romans 6, 6 through 11, again, the message. Could it be any clearer? Okay. Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin miserable life. No longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. That's good, right? That's like makes you want to like toss some more confetti, you know? That he brought God down to us. He took our sin and he got rid of it. It is gone. So let me explain it this way. 
before Jesus fulfilled the law, we were in a sin-based system. We were in a system that measured your holiness based on your sinfulness, right? The day of atonement, all these things, you wanted to be holy. You wanted to make yourself holy because that's what uh, equated your spirituality. And then you didn't want to sin in certain ways because that was really bad, not just because it's it's still bad now, but it was really bad because it equated your spirituality, right? Now, Jesus comes, he fulfills the law. He fulfills the payment for your sin. Now we're in a new covenant. What is the new covenant about? Sin is not a factor of your spirituality anymore. This is a hard concept to grasp. I remember when I started trying to wrap my mind around this, and I, I literally said, Lord, this is scary. Am I going to become a big sinner if I really believe that you don't, that sin doesn't factor to you in the same way I believed it before? Are you tracking with me in that? And I thought, I don't know, like, you know, what do I do? And because if I'm not trying to be holy for the sake of approval in your eyes, then why am I trying to be holy? Does that make sense? And God, God just kind of put it on me and he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. But what I found was I still didn't do the bad stuff. But now I don't do it because I love him so much, it makes me sad to do something that makes him sad. It's not because I try to keep myself holy to prove a point to myself or other people or God. Because in this new system, that sliding scale is irrelevant. You guys tracking with me? So holiness doesn't equate our spirituality. Holiness is a byproduct of our nearness to a holy God. Righteousness is a byproduct of when we spend time with a righteous God. Truthfulness, any fruit of the Spirit, it all comes out of you because you're close to him. This is so important because what happens over here, okay, we're now over here. I don't care what you think. This is where you are. It's like the matrix, right? This is what's real, but we can pretend all day long that this is real life. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the thought about what a spirit of religion is. It's like a spiritual force that invades your thinking, right? And the spirit of religion wants you over here so bad because if you can formula your way through life, you won't need God. The spirit of religion tells you there's, there can be a point where you can know enough that you don't have to put up with the unpredictable, quirky side of God. But relationship tells us God is unpredictable and quirky, and that's a good thing. Sometimes it's bothersome. But it's great, right? It's like when you're married, you're like, there's things about you that I just would prefer you didn't do, but I'll put up with it because you are who I want to be with, right? And, and so in this, in this sphere over here, we're, we're um, propelled by relationship with Jesus. In this sphere over here, we're propelled because we don't want the wrath of God. But we can be alive today as a believer still living in this world. And this is what I want to share with you guys today. And if nothing else, hear that this world is not the fullness that Jesus came to give you. He came to give you a life and a life to the full. Other translations and the actual context of that verse means a life better than everyone else. Does that mean you're going to be richer? Who cares? Money is like not the point of life, right? It means you'll be richer in your spirit. It means when you wake up in the morning, you, you like that you're alive. It means that you're alert in your mind. You have a prosperous soul. Your relationships are healthy. That's what the life he came to give you was for, right? <coughs> so over here, we're always sin conscious. We're always aware of how much we're failing. We're always aware of where we fall short. Over here, we're God conscious. We're aware of what he's trying to do in our lives. Here's the thing. When God looks at you, because if you are saved, because Jesus' payment was satisfied in your life, God does not see your sin anymore. What? 
He doesn't look at you and think, well, you know what, Tuesday, you, that was really bad. He actually looks and says, you know what, Tuesday, you missed out on what I was trying to do for you. You missed out on who I wanted to be for you in that moment. Over here, it's filled with condemnation and guilt. When we sin on this side of the picture, we sin and we say, oh my gosh, I did that thing. Let's say it's getting drunk or whatever. Pick a sin in your heart, I mean your head. Okay, I did this, right? And, and I, I feel so bad that I did this. And Lord, I don't think, I, I want to hide myself from you because, because I did this thing. And I know that you paid for it on the cross. And I'm so sorry that I, that I did this. And then in my shame, I withdraw from God. And now because I have withdrawn, I feel like God has withdrawn. He didn't withdraw. I'm the one who stepped back. But in my shame, I step back and I go, oh, no, oh, no, no. And then I start feeling really guilty. And then I go, gosh, I, I can't believe I did that. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I put myself into three twirls, five push-ups, three days of fasting. You know, well, I can't watch my favorite TV show now because I'm a terrible person because I did this thing, right? And, that, and this is a whole cycle. And then I whip myself because I feel so guilty. And then I feel bad that Jesus is, that I have this distance with him. And it's this never-ending spiral of a cycle because all I'm doing is looking at my sin. Over here, what do we do with sin? Whoa, I had a, I'll just tell you, I had a really bad attitude with my family yesterday. It was really bad. And unfortunately, my son was the first one to confess to me his bad attitude. And I thought, ooh, I really missed that mark. Now I need to tell him, you know. Because he said, I had a really bad attitude about losing a game in an Easter egg hunt. I said, yeah. I said, we all did. <laughs> it's like, it's okay. We're forgiven, you know. But so I have a bad attitude. And, and, and if I'm in that section, in this mind frame, I'm beating myself up. Man, why did you do that? You're better than this. Come on, get your act together. In this section, I'm going, God, I'm sorry I let my stress and my frustration overwhelm my self-control. And you didn't die for that. You died to give me empowerment, to give me the ability to rise above, to not be enslaved to sin. So forgive me for letting, slave be a, for letting sin be a master for me in that moment because I actually master it. That's what the cross was about. I've been given freedom to stand up and say, I don't care what temptation comes at my door, I can overcome it. You know why? Because Jesus overcame the greatest temptations more than we'll ever be given, and his spirit lives in me, so there's nothing I can't overcome. So I'm not looking at my sin. If I'm stuck in a sin, I'm not looking at it over here from shame and condemnation. Why do I keep doing this thing? I turn my eyes on Jesus, who is in heaven now, right? When we focus on the cross, we often are looking at ourselves. He was only on the cross for six hours. It was, a, I have to fulfill this thing. Once he was off the cross, now he ascended into heaven. So I look up to him and I, my eyes are not on myself anymore. And when they're not on myself, I can look at him and I can say, Jesus, you're worth me rising above this thing. You are worth me stepping over this temptation. I might want to do this over here and nobody knows about it and I could get away with it in the natural, but I don't want to do that because you are worth it to me. A pastor that I love says it like this. He says, if I'm tempted to sin, I picture Jesus kneeling in front of me and I picture myself having to step over him to get to the thing I want to do. It changes perspective a little bit, right? Because he's with us all the time. He's within us. And it's such a profound truth that if we can let go of this religious thinking about sin, if we can let go of this condemnation that only leads to withdrawal. See, old covenant thinking, sin leads to death. 
It just does. It's all through the Bible. The wages of sin is death. The payment for sin has to be a blood sacrifice. We spent the last two weeks talking about that, right? It has to be a real sacrifice of a living thing. Once Jesus fulfilled that, now righteousness leads to life. So all we have to do is just step into it. <laughs> right? Let yourself get a little excited. Uh, Romans six eighteen. I love this verse. It says, and after you've been set free from sin, you become enslaved to righteousness, right? We are no longer slaves to sin. Paul says this throughout Romans time and time again. You are no longer a slave to sin. In other words, there is nothing in this world that can enslave you unless you let it. Because Jesus has already taken care of everything you need. Jesus has already fulfilled the payment. Jesus has given you the spirit of overcomer. Jesus has given you anything you need. So the only thing that's going to enslave you is when you decide, I want to be enslaved to that. Now here's some food for thought for you. Over the next couple days, think about the course of your life and think about, have there been things I've let enslave me? See, excuses are the glue of slavery, right? We stay seated in our chained chair. We glue ourselves into the chain by the excuse me, into the chair with excuses. Well, if I had only had a better family, well, if I only had more money, or if I had people around me who just helped me, or guys, you're lacking nothing. The only thing we're lacking is up in here what we believe. I know this sounds crazy because it's a lot harder than it sounds right it's, it's like okay great I have no you know my sin is dealt with I don't have to think about that and then something happens and you're like wait which world am I gonna think about this in now and I can tell you for me it took me about two years to practice this on a regular basis I would be over here I'd be telling myself you know you are dead to sin because that's what Romans tells us because one pastor says it this way uh, do we go try to revive a corpse that's in the ground that would be crazy, right? It's actually illegal to go dig up a body that's been buried. And so if I've been buried with him in Christ, but I also want to work on my sin, so I go over there and I go, excuse me, uh, attention, Jesus morgue. Can I have that one? That's me. And I'm trying to do something to my dead person. It's, that's ludicrous, right? We've been, our, we are dead to sin, it has no hold over you. Can you still sin? Yes, you can. But like I'm saying, then you just bring it to God and you become aware of what you're missing in your experience from him and fix that. So we're not sin conscious, we're God conscious. All right, um, I want to read to you out of um, Romans 6.6, 6, out of the Passion Translation. If you guys don't have the Passion Translation, it's so great. Um, it's, a, it's just another reiterating the same point. It says, could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power? It's dead. Our former identity, that's you before you got saved, okay? Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power? For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we would not continue to live one moment longer submitted to sin's power. That's good stuff, right? We are, that we wouldn't continue to live one moment longer. <clears throat> It says, for we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us. Now, you choose what you believe. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're walking in this reality, right? But today you can. 
For me, I feel like I've gotten saved probably 45 times. I don't remember the first time. I, was, I remember being a little girl, three or four years old, and feeling the presence of God with me. I grew up in a, um, an environment that wasn't always friendly to me, and I remember God being near. But I, and I remember being in sixth grade. I was in a Methodist church, and I went through the confirmation process, and I was sprinkled baptized. And, um, and I remember that moment committing my life to Jesus as a little sixth grader. And I remember in high school sliding into some double life type stuff and then having a really crazy prophetic dream that I thought was for someone else because I was so hard to the Lord. And God goes, that's for you. And I thought, oh, oh okay, that's not good, right? I need to deal with this sin in my heart and made some life changes. And I said, God, I'm with you all the way. And I remember two years later being a sophomore in college and having an encounter with God in my bedroom and saying, okay, I'm with you all the way, right? I've done this so many times because in, as life comes in and thoughts come in and the enemy comes in and circumstances and all of that, we can lose our way. We can start to lean away from the profound nature of what God has given us. But we are dead to sin. We are enslaved to righteousness. And I don't know about you, but that should just get you excited. Yes. So how are you living now? Are you still trying to wake your corpse up? You don't have to answer right now. I don't want you to. (laughs) I just want you to think in your heart. Where am I really at with this? Because this is what the Bible says, and I'm actually only highlighting like three or four scriptures. This is the whole New Testament. If you read it through this lens, you will see it everywhere. Because what Jesus came to do was to liberate you, to free you. This is why on Easter Sunday we always give big gifts. I think it's hilarious so many of the kids won. It's like God loves little kids. It's awesome. And my son Jack was like, he won the $20 bill, you know, and he said, all I wanted was that box of M&Ms, whoever got the red box with the M&Ms. I said, well, you can go trade your $20 with their box, or you could buy 20 boxes of M&Ms. And he goes, oh, Okay, but I'm listening to him say this, and I'm thinking, this is the Spirit of God, right? This is exactly what we're talking about this morning, that I have this $20 bill, and I'd rather have the dollar box because it's predictable because I know what's in it, right? And God goes, well, you can have that, or, or you could have 20 times that. It's just a matter of perspective. When I told him all the things he could buy with $20, he goes, He was totally fine after that, right? No more sadness. So where are you at in this process? (coughs) I don't want to hammer the point a million times, but I want to make it really clear. There's nothing more powerful than the resurrection. There's nothing. I mean, the cross was pretty powerful. I have to admit, when I was listening to the podcast last week, because I was in kids, and Grant got to that part where he said, then, then Jesus died on the cross, and the graves were opened, and people were raised from the dead. And I literally thought, that didn't happen. I've read the story, I don't know how many times. But he just breezed over it so fast. I don't know if you guys thought that, but I thought, are you just talking about zombies here? Like, my mind went a whole direction that I just got, I had to pause the podcast because I got totally lost in it. And I called him and I said, I'm not mad, but I was really intense because I just couldn't, my brain was like going, well, I said, I'm not mad, but where does it say that? And he goes, here's where it is, Matthew 27 something, and it's clear as day in there. And I thought, okay. I don't know how I've just breezed over that the cross accidentally resurrected a bunch of people. I mean, that's something I think we'd all want to know, you know. Uh, But it's like the power, the cross was so powerful, but the resurrection was even more powerful, you know. And I love that verse that says, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. We literally can do anything 
Paul tells us nothing is impossible. We can do anything, right? Toss your confetti. That's right. So the cross has given us freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from strongholds, freedom from the enemy, things the enemy tries to tell you. You'll never get over this. Hogwash, guys. All you have to do is tell him, uh, listen, you tape this little piece of confetti to your mirror and go, uh, one word, resurrection. You can try to tell me all day I'm never going to not be afraid. One word, resurrection. You can tell me all day long I'm never going to ever, I'm never going to feel accepted. I'm always going to feel rejected. I've got one word for you. What is it? Resurrection, right? No matter the issue, the resurrection took care of it. I mean, the cross took care of it too, but the fact that he didn't stay dead, I mean, wow. And he's never going to die again. And then we're actually put into him because the cross gives us freedom. And then it also gives us a future. Because now, I don't know why, but we are co-heirs with him. Like, what? It's like, I mean, you know, if you guys were here for the Passover, we talked about the word dainu. It's a Hebrew word. It means it would have been enough, right? It would have been enough if all you did was take away the sins of the world. But now I actually co-reign with you? I'm sorry. Excuse me? And not only do I co-reign with you, but you live inside of me. And now whatever I'm called to do, whether it's, you know, big or little in my eyes, I'm empowered to do that. And you actually come alongside and you teach me how to do those things. And so I can go from this to this. I can go from Saul to Paul, right? I can be totally down the wrong path, go in the wrong way, miss the boat, and turn around and become one of the greatest people ever. Dianu, right. It would have been enough if all you did was save me from my sin. But you had to go one-up it, Lord. And now I'm a co-heir with Christ, and I've been given this future. I've been given this future that's so good. It's life to the full, better than everybody else. I have to ask you for a second. If you look around your life, and you don't feel like you're better than at least some of the people, and let me pause and say, I don't mean in the judgment, like, I'm so much better than you right? But that when you, you know what I'm saying? I, there's, there's people God has allowed in my life that they're there to remind me that life and life to the full is mine. Let me put it that way. I love them. I want them to step into their resurrection power, right? But in the moment, they're not thinking that's available to them. It's equally available to them as it is to me. There's nothing special about me or you. There's something really special about the resurrection, right? And if we choose to believe it, if we choose to step in to what he's called us to do, he gives us a future. I don't care what's happened in your life. I know in this room there's a lot of people who thought I was going this direction and something happened and I ended up on a turntable and now I'm going this way, right? I've had moments like that in my life where I, I signed up and said yes to the Lord with a very clear expectation of what I was saying yes to, and I closed my eyes for just a second, and he spun me around, and I ended up going, you know, west instead of east, and I'm like, how did I get here, <laughs> right? Because sometimes life does that. But even in that, such greatness awaits you because Jesus has given you a future, and our better days are ahead. No matter how old you are, your better days are ahead. I actually love I'm telling myself now because I know I'm young. I tell myself when I'm 60, when I'm 70, those are going to be my best days, right? And, I, and I, I'm weird. I was a kid dreaming of being a mom, okay? I mean, I, my mom will say, uh, I was a kid. You'd say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd say, I want to have 12 kids. And I'm, you know, that's a lot. I have four, and I think to myself, I just didn't know what I was saying, and I was five, so that's okay. But I would say, I want to have a bunch of kids. I want to be a mom, right? I mean, I knew that. And now I'm thinking, this is how I want to be as a grandma. And my mom says to me, she's a grandma, you know, she says, you just need to slow down. 
you just need to slow down. I'm like, yeah, okay, but there's a piece of me that knows that it's just going to keep getting better. So I love dreaming of that because it's just going to keep getting better. Is every day going to feel better? Of course not. You could put it this way. There's, there's no longer good days and bad days. There's just days of grace, right? Graham Cook says there's days of grace, grace to overcome and grace to endure. There's days where we have to just endure. I don't like this day. Come on, sundown. <laughs> Come on, pull that down. Bring me tomorrow. But he's given us a future, and this is where I just want to end. I don't know what of this morning is going to speak to your heart. I just know this is the message that he's put in my heart to share with you. And I know that when we make the choice to let go of this shame and guilt and condemnation system that is no longer applicable, when we do that, we open ourselves up to something miraculous. And so what I want to do as we end, I'm gonna, we're going to put on some music. And, you know, I debated, should we have a ministry team or whatnot? But this is what God said to me. He said, I came, I died, I rose from the grave so that there would be nothing hindering my relationship with you. When he tore the veil in that moment, I think God was like, is it time yet? Is it time yet? How many more seconds of air do you think he has left? You know, the angels are like going, feeling Jesus' lungs, you know. Ten more seconds, God. He's like, ten, nine, eight, you know. And Jesus goes, it is finished. Now, this is miraculous in itself because if you've ever studied what happens to the body on a crucifixion, you're not able to speak loudly. Like your lungs crush in a way, you can't do that. But Jesus shouted that out loud enough to where everybody could hear him. Why? Because this was important. It is finished. Your sin done gone, paid for. Nobody can come and tell you you owe anything less if you have accepted Jesus in your heart. And so Jesus goes, it is finished. And God in heaven is like, yeah! And he rips the veil and he rips it from top to the bottom because he's sending a message. Nothing God does is not intentional, right? It's always deliberate. It's detailed. It's intricate. We don't always understand what, but this is one of those moments. He rips it from top to bottom and he's saying, there's nothing hindering. I'm coming for you. Get me out of this little tent thing, right, with the jingle bells on the high priest once a year, you know? And he goes, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And he rips himself out, and he's like, you know? And I think, I mean, oh, my gosh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like, God, replay this over and over again. I just want to watch how this happened, everything. I want to watch what the angels did. That was amazing. Okay, replay. What did you do? That was amazing. Okay, replay. What did Holy Spirit do? Jesus, when you died, did you, like, instantly go, oh, it's over, thankfully? Right? Were you, what did you do? Or were you sad? Or were you happy? And, and were you just like triumphant with your sword, ready to go get the keys back from the gates of hell? Or what were you doing? Right? Because God is so, he was like, this is the moment. This is the moment. There's now nothing. There's nothing hindering me. The only thing that's going to hinder you is anything you let enslave you because you are now no longer a slave to sin. Can I get an amen, right? This is good stuff. So today, some of you guys, you might need to get a little scraper and scrape the glue of excuses off your backside that's holding you in that chair because nothing else is holding you there. It may be a fight. It may be the fight of your life, but guess what? You have God on your side, the resurrected God, the one who didn't stay dead, right? Oh, man, there are times when I have to preach to myself, and I just want to be vulnerable because it's true. This is hard. It's hard when the enemy's coming at you and telling you this, that, and the other. But faith comes by hearing, 
right? So there's times when I have to tell myself, I, when I'm alone or in my car, you guys know I love to spend time with God in my car, and I'll preach to myself as if I'm the most anointed preacher in the world in that moment, and I'm talking about moments where I'm thinking, hide me in a hole, I need to move town, I do not feel like I'm called to anything God's called me to, right? And I'll tell myself, could it be any clearer? Self? That former identity is now and forever deprived of its power. It's dead. For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us. Could it be any clearer, Rachel? You are called to something greater than this. Could it be any clearer? And you tell yourself, you stand up on your own two feet because you can do this. And then I will tell myself, I don't know if you can right? And then my spirit will tell myself, yes, you can, because the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is within you. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to meet with that God, right? We've already been meeting with him. I mean, it's Easter. It's his favorite day. I always picture Jesus on a white horse on Easter. I don't know why, with like confetti falling off behind him. I don't know. God is fun, right? He's serious at times, but he's also really fun. And I love celebrating the fun part of God. So that triumphant Jesus, he wants to meet with you this morning. And so what we're going to do, we're going to open the confetti zone. Because <laughs> it doesn't look much like an altar, but it's good. Um, Grant's going to pick out some music. And, and what I want to do is just invite you. I'm going to pray. And I'm just going to invite you to open your heart and say, God, what do you have for me today? You ripped open the veil. You did everything, and it was for you. Hebrew says you, for the joy that was set before him is you. So he wants to speak something to you. Today's about you as much as it's about him, right? So we're just going to say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say? God, what do you want to say? However you want to pray that. And we're just going to let him speak to you. And after a few minutes, if you need prayer, grab somebody. But I really believe he's going to speak something to your heart. So Lord, we just thank you, God, for the gift of salvation we thank you for the freedom that you've given us. We thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin. God, we thank you that you're so powerful that we can step into a new reality where we are overcomers and nothing can hold us back. And so this morning, would you highlight anything that we need to deal with, that we need to let go? Would you give us the boldness and the courage to face the things that might be holding us back this morning? And Father, I just ask you to rip the veil over our eyes this morning that we would see and feel and hear from you in a fresh way, in Jesus' name. So if you wanna to come to the front, if you wanna to go to the back, you can do whatever you feel like you need to do.